Good morning. I'm thankful and glad to be here. Uh, my name is Israel Martinez, and I am the lead pastor and have that privilege of serving here at Redeemer Church. And I just want you to know, church, um, that, that I love you, and I'm so thankful that we are able to get to worship together today. I mean, I, I've just been super encouraged and blessed to share in what we've been talking about, this gospel partnership um, that we have been growing in together, seeing you guys abiding in Jesus, growing in Jesus. And so, man, I see your humble gospel partnership and the unity that Christ is bringing in our church. And so thank you uh, for your work. Thank you for your support. And as you continue blessing, teaching, and leading um, each other uh, uh, to, to truly do what we hope to do is to love God, to love people, and to make disciples of all nations for God's glory. And so again, I'm so thankful that we get to worship today as we learn um, from the book of Philippians, um, specifically today in chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. So if you have a Bible, turn on your Bible, join us there, have your eyes um, in and heart in the text. And we're going to see and, and learn today that our text teaches and encourages. Remember, that's a big theme of Philippians. Paul is encouraging. Um, but our text teaches and encourages the church to live as shining lights in the world. That's just not a flippant thing we say, but it's actually coming from the Bible, um, that we would live as shining lights in the world. So let's learn what that means. Again, our text teaches and encourages the church to live as shining lights in the world who are obedient to grow in sanctification as they live together sacrificially as gospel partners anticipating the day of Christ. So remember, we've been learning in the book of Philippians that gospel partnership produces unity in the faith. And so Paul has said this amazing phrase. It kind of sets the tone. He says, for all of Philippians, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul is telling these believers at Philippi that they will, be, that they will suffer and be engaged in conflict. And Paul wants the church to be encouraged on this foundation of gospel unity in spite of conflict and suffering. And so the Apostle Paul uses this word partnership, which is the Greek word koinonia, which can mean uh, some churches use it in their name, many churches do, community, fellowship, uh, partnership, or even a good translation is joint partnership. So think of this image of holding together, fighting for unity, fighting for partnership. So we have this um, defined biblical partnership um, saying that true partnership in the church is an active partnership in the gospel, a close relationship uh, of, um, so it's an active partnership in the gospel, and, and it involves a close relationship of mutual benefit, um, and, and that is also promoting the gospel through cooperation, sympathy, suffering, financial giving, active labor, prayer, and love. And so when you look at Philippians, there's three big themes, and you can't escape them, and, and that they are this partnership that we're talking about, gospel partnership, unity in partnership, this encouragement that Paul gives us in spite of suffering and conflict, and then change in people. And so uh, we have learned that, that a good summary for the whole book of Philippians is this, that Paul encourages this gospel partnership in the church that will actually advance or progress the gospel, same idea, same word, um, as it changes people and expands to all nations. And so 
You see, the, the, this book of Philippians was written by Paul. Many of you who have been in church have heard of Paul, right? Some of you have not. He, he was this super apostle. He became this guy that went to the nations and expanded the gospel, but he started as a criminal, persecuting Christians, hating Christians. And God woke him up, changed his life on the way to Damascus, and then Paul became this ambassador for the true gospel. Not his gospel, not his version, but the true gospel. And so... Um, Paul's, you see that Paul's letter to the churches in Philippi provided this wonderful example of what true gospel partnership was. And the Philippians had shared in Paul's proclamation of the gospel, they sympathized with his suffering. They suffered in the gospel themselves and they gave sacrificially to support the cause of Christ. They also worked together to be a distinct people on display in their city. And they prayed for Paul and the progress or the advancement of the gospel as, as, as an overflow of love born in them by the Holy Spirit. And so again, in the book of Philippians, remember, Paul is alone at the end of his ministry in a Roman jail cell. And, and, and Paul was wanting the church. He says this phrase, he wants them to live lives worthy of the gospel. He says, he says he's wanting the church to live lives worthy of the gospel in unity as gospel partners. Again, we're, we've talked about that. It's not just kumbaya, but it's true unity. What are things that we can let go that are not gospel issues? There are gospel issues. We're not saying that, but true biblical unity. The, the, the point is, Paul's saying that we, there is a true biblical unity, and we can hold to that, so we have to learn what that is. That's what we've been doing in our study in Philippians. And so let's read our text, if you would join me, in Philippians um, but again, Paul was saying this idea of growing in gospel unity, and I want us to, to hear what are, are the main point of our text today is that in Philippians 2, 12 through 8, builds on, the, on this idea as it clearly teaches and encourages the church to live as shining lights in the world who are obedient to grow in sanctification as they live uh, life together sacrificially as gospel partners who are anticipating the day of Christ. All that's in our text, and we'll get through it. And so let's read together in Philippians 2, 12 through 8, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be, poor, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all, or y'all, Texas style. Likewise, you or you all should be glad and rejoice with me. And so, again, as we look at our text, we see that it clearly teaches um, and encourages the church to live as shining lights in the world who are obedient to what? To grow in sanctification as they live together sacrificially as gospel partners anticipating the day of Christ, known as the day of the Lord. And so let's look at verse 12 more closely as it says, we just read it, therefore, my beloved, you have always obeyed. Man, that's, that's strong. 
right? <laughs> well, as believers, we can't say that. What is he saying? Let's, let, let's keep reading. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Again, oftentimes we can think Christianity is perfection. The Bible never says that. Paul never says that. He's saying working it out. What's their obedience in this, in this push, this call to work out your salvation in fear and trembling? And so we see here in verse 12 that lights in the world are obedient to grow in this thing called sanctification. In this fear and trembling, in a way we can say this humility towards God and his holiness and hate towards sin. And so remember, anytime we see a therefore in the text, we have to ask what? Why is it therefore, right? And so in this text, we see the therefore refers to all that Paul has previously addressed. Sometimes the therefore can address what he's about to say. But here we see it addresses what he has just said. And, and, and Paul means um, in the therefore, there's a lot there that, that's kind of what we've been talking about. We talked about last few weeks that we partner together in the gospel because Jesus has called us to gospel unity. We can't forget that. Through what? Through this partnership. Because Jesus, the God man, he actually came in obedience to the father to be our humbly exalted savior who has called us to be o- obedient in following him as the light of the world. So we're going to talk about us being lights in the world, but who are we following? The light in the world. And, and so we too, just like we sang, are to be lights in the world. We can actually say that. And, and what does that mean? Basically, it, it means if we are true lights of the world, it means that you've truly been saved, that you truly are God's children, and that you will be obedient. Isn't that interesting? Not that you might or may, that you will be. Why? Because God's children recognize that it was not their works that brought about this salvation, but rather God's works that saved you. And so if you are saved, you must know that God saved you. You can never save yourself. And so our obedience stems from his obedience to what? Like we learned last week, to death on a cross. And Paul had just, again, mentioned that in verses, a few verses ahead. You see, because Christ's obedience leads to his humility. Think of humility this way, to his humiliation. That as the perfect God-man, who as the scriptures say, became sin, who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. You see, God's humility and choosing and saving of, of us allows us to follow him in humility and obedience, which can be a synonym for true belief. And so think of this when we talk about being obedient to Jesus. What are we talking about? Obedience brings about relation of law or or rules, obedient to something, right? And so we know as sinners that we could never be obedient or keep keep the law. We can't. But Christ was the one who kept the law. He did what we could never do. And, and he was the one who was obedient as uh, our Messiah in keeping the law. And so, again, who is the one who kept the law? Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. He kept the law. And in his obedience as children, we can become obedient through the power of the Holy Spirit, saving us and working out our salvation in fear and trembling. And so look at verse 12 with me again as it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, man, that's strong again, but if you have Jesus, you're walking in sanctification. You may grieve the spirit, but eventually you're going to be compelled, hopefully by God's grace, to walk in the spirit. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
So Paul is saying obedience, in a sense, is justification or being saved. It's nothing that you did. Your obedience has already been won over by Christ. Literally, being made justified or righteous, which is it's the same word in Greek, which is then tied to the process of, of, of the other aspect of, sanct- of salvation, sanctification. Again, which is the process of Christian growth into what? Not perfection, into being perfected, the Bible says, into completeness or holiness as you are already justified, already obedient because he's obedient. Again, we will never, that's why Paul can say that at the beginning, as you always have. Again, we will never be sinless or perfect. That's not the point. But the Bible does tell us that we are being perfected or made complete in Christ. And this is the process, again, of sanctification or Christian maturity to become more holy. Which will then eventually lead us to glorification. So again, in in verses 12, it teaches us that lights in the world, true children of God, are obedient to grow in sanctification. In fear and trembling, meaning humility toward God and his holiness and hate towards sin. So if we are truly saved, we can be obedient as we are sanctified and can actually work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Like you don't have to live in a doubt that you can do that. You, if you are a Christian, have the power through the Holy Spirit to do this. You see, fear and the love of God are philosophically connected, especially in, in when we talk of, of in Hebrew. There are two sides of the same coin. To fear God is how the Old Testament says it, is to love God and his goodness and grace and mercy and forgiveness, all that God gives. To love God is the greatest commandment that God gave us, right? So this means we never stop growing in the love of God, in his gospel. That's a fallacy. We can think that we have arrived in, in complete knowledge of, 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 and the idea of loving God. How arrogant is that? If we were to say that, but guys, we're always growing in this love of God, always. And we can confidently say, yes, I love God, but also know that I'm being sanctified. So I'm growing in this love of God too. It doesn't mean you're not saved or you're losing your salvation. That's a lie too. No one can pluck you from God's hand if you're his child. But that doesn't mean you stop. That means we keep growing. That's where Satan has, especially as Americans, we have so many trappings and money and things and all these comforts. And Satan just wants us to stop and to see ourselves as, as humble. But actually, we see the humble one, and that's how we continue. The, the, the true love of God lets us love the, the true God of the Bible and not our own version of God. The God of the Bible is to be feared. Right? And that actually means fear, not just a soft version. It does have, the, obviously, the idea of respect and honor. Being fearful of someone is not bad. Our culture says that's bad. Again, there, there, there can be good fear and bad fear. But when you see the Bible speak of the love of God and this fear and, fear and trembling is part of the love of God. In the Old Testament, the Bible uses the phrase, again, fear of God synonymously with love of God. And the New Testament in Ephesians 5.21 speaks of the fear of Christ. Interesting. So as true lights of the world, as true children of God who are obedient to grow in sanctification, we must fear and tremble at Our God in what? In his holiness, in seeing his perfection, in seeing what we are not, and in our hate and displeasure towards sin. We must fear God because we have sinned against him and we deserve his wrath. Again, but, but if we are loved by him, we can actually be comforted 
by having a true fear of God. There's a, there's a false fear of God. Fear of God is good. It's actually a good thing. It's actually a great thing. The fear of God is true love of God and seeing his mercy, which he has given to us, which he has withheld. Mercy is withholding punishment. We deserve the wrath of God, but God withholds that because he put it on his son. And he allows us to then shine as lights in the world because God's word says we love him because he first loved us. And guys, what a joy, like what a privilege for those of us who are his children. And, 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 and so with the true fear of God, there comes this, this working out what God has worked in us, the text says. Look at verses 12 and 13 in context with me, which say again, Therefore, my beloved, he says, my beloved, he said, hey, I love y'all, okay? He's, he's not trying to be harsh. As, as you have always in your justification obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out. There's this proactive discipleship. Sometimes we're, we're, we're very passive. We're like, well, if God didn't do it, I, the Bible says he, he loved me first, so he's got to initiate everything. He gave you a brain. He gave you arms that move. He gave you an ability, a responsibility, a will, we could say, to actually love him, especially if you're his child. He's given you that. And look, it says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, do what? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. Again, we see lights of the world are obedient to grow in sanctification, in fear and trembling, meaning humility toward God and his holiness and hate toward sin. Because God, verse 13 says, God works in you through the Holy Spirit. To what? To will and to work for his good pleasure. Not for your good pleasure, not for what we want, but for what he wants. Might not be what you want, but the Bible says you can pray according to his will and that it can align and that we can actually, it could actually be what you want. This is talking about that struggle in the flesh, right? Remember, the Bible says there's, there, there's the fleshy side of us and the sanctified, if you're a Christian, that's growing. And so we see here that, that, that God works in you through the Holy Spirit. He talks about will. What does this mean? This means... Um, that all we just talked about, that God is in control or sovereign in our salvation. He saved you. You didn't save yourself. And, and that, that it is his good will that works out for his children's good. Because our ultimate good is what, is what he wants. And so God will use our sanctification, our process of growing in Christian maturity to glorify him. The text says, God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure this means that he will will us to be sanctified in obedience to his glory. So do you trust God to will you to glorify him? You have a part in that. He's given you that part. Do you trust him to work in you? Or do, you, or do we trust ourselves, guys? Do we trust ourselves? Or do we have this actual obedience that Paul said the Philippian church has, which comes with, again, that true love or fear of God, that will make your life actually glorify him. It's possible. You see, the text says God works, meaning he has done the work in us, like we talked about earlier, in our initial salvation or justification. And God then allows us to work out our salvation, our present salvation, meaning God allows us to grow 
through this process of, of, of Christian maturity called sanctification. We grow in him. So work, like we said earlier, again, for, we work for his good pleasure. God has done the work in us to then will us and allow us to work out our salvation. Do you see the beauty of the gospel story? That we who are lights in the world, that we should know this gospel story of a great God who created it and, and, and brought everything to life and made everything good and made all of us in his image, which then allowed us to see that there is this chasm between us and God, this problem. And God wasn't caught, caught surprised by the problem. He allowed sin and death to enter the world so that we would know him, that we would see him as the light of the world and become lights of the world. But there was this problem of sin and death and God sent a redeemer for us to see our brokenness and sin. And then he uh, allowed his son to be the redemption or the redeemer. And in this redemption, we see that Jesus was the one who appeased or absorbed the wrath of God. This anger of God, the Bible talks about. So that his, us as his children, his, ele- his, his elected, his, his babies could actually be set free to then be catalyzed, to then live out this gospel, to be delivered, saved. We're going to sing a song in, in Joshua, and the whole theme of Joshua is this deliverance. Joshua means Jesus. We're going to sing, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord based on this idea of, of the Israelites being delivered, just like we would be delivered. As the new Israel, the Bible says. And guys, we have this atonement or cover of covering of our sin from Jesus, our Redeemer, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and in his ascension. We have, redemp- we have redemption in Christ, and he has called us to two big things. This is our response, to repent and believe. The Bible says God grants that to you, gives that to you, and he gives you belief. So again, he calls us to repent and to believe, to turn away from sin. That's what repentance means, a changing of the mind. Remember, Philippians talks about changing people. It's the theme of the Bible. That our minds would be literally changed and turned to, away from Satan's kingdom and to Christ's kingdom and belief or faith. The same idea in the uh, Bible. And that we would turn to him in belief, right? In, in allegiance to what? In allegiance to his kingdom. And then in that, guys, the Bible says that we will enter this thing called glorification, where Christ will restore everything. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, and he will um, make all things new. He will give us new bodies, and he will judge the world. He will be the ultimate uh, avenger, the ultimate one to bring vengeance. And he will rid the world of sin and evil, and he will usher in righteousness and goodness and peace, and we will eternally be glorified with him in his presence. And so if we love this gospel story, we have to to love and fear God because the Bible says again that he has first loved us and allowed us to be lights in the world who are actually obedient, who grow in sanctification. And then he gets real practical. He says all this big fancy theological stuff. Look at verse 14 with me. To do all things without grumbling and disputing. It's like, oh man, come on, Paul. Man, I want to grumble a little bit, you know. I'm a grumbler. My back hurts right now. I am a grumbler when my back gets, uh, I'm grumbly, let's say. That's a, that's a new word. As verse 14 says, y'all, it says, do all things. Again, it's like, oh, why does that have to say all? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. What about the things I, I kind of don't like? Can I, you know, grumble about those things? Man, this is a high call, right? This is a high call. Think of a work environment. Think of those environments where people are always complaining and grumbling. And, and you know, it's like uh, the Eeyore off of Winnie the Pooh. Oh, man, he's just walking around like this, right? It's like, come on, Eeyore. Who wants to be around Eeyore? 
Nobody, right? No one wants to be about Tigger either. He's he's too much. But there's a balance there, right, of what this is saying. But listen to this. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. True children of God know their status as lights in the world, and we can live without this grumbling. It's hard to not complain. It's super hard. So many things make us forget about God and put down his power. That's really what grumbling and complaining is doing. You know, we're doing it to one of his children. It's not saying that things can't be bad, okay? There are things that are bad. It's not saying that we can't observe that. But through Christ, we can actually live lives where we are actually hopeful. Christ does not, um, um, ha- not want us to live these negative, pessimistic lives of grumbling and complaining. There's actually hope in Christ. Do we believe that? Man, that, that's, that's, that's a charge to me. This doesn't mean that we're not cautious or careful or discerning about situations. It doesn't mean we don't have an opinion, right? Um, but as Paul reminds us that conflict and suffering, they're inevitable. Like you're going to have a billion things to complain about all the time, right? So that's our tendency is to like, let's gospel ourselves. We can complain about things all day. But remember, he is saying this, Paul is not, he's an expert on the I can complain thing. He's saying this from a Roman jail. He's been beaten. He's been through so much junk. Paul is, imagine, he's gospeling himself right now to not be grumbly and complain. As he's reminding the church, he's saying this as a man who was probably tired, hungry, sweaty, stinky, stanky, probably. He's in this Roman jail cell and he's preaching the gospel to himself to not complain. And it's hard. Why is he doing this? Because he was for sure tempted again to complain about his humiliation. He's like, don't you see me? I'm Paul. I'm the super apostle. Why am I in jail? Man, he was humiliated. Would you not be humiliated if right now, tomorrow, you got convicted of some crime? You're like, I didn't even do it. And and, then we're in jail and we get a report and say, oh, man, that person we thought was goody two-shoes Christian is now in jail. That's how Paul feels. He's like, man. But he remembered the humble servant. That's how he can live in this. He remembered Jesus who was actually perfected and ultimately humiliated to glorify the Father and to save their souls. And so Paul is why he's saying this. He's saying, don't dispute. Don't argue pointless things. Don't be talking about the Nephilim all the time. Sometimes wasting our time or getting involved in the end times and try to make charts and figure it all out. Paul speaks against a quarrelsome spirit, a spirit that always wants to fight. Well, brother. Brother, 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 well, I don't know. What about this or that? You know, like, just be careful with that. Doesn't mean we can't have an opinion. So be careful how you roll. That's what Paul is saying. The point isn't to get your conviction out. If the point is that you lose on your conviction and win a brother over, and then maybe 10 years down the road, they're like, you're right. Sometimes that's what discipleship is. It takes time. It takes years. It takes sweat. And so that's what he's saying. Gospel yourself to not complain and quarrel. We all have to do that, right? This is the hardest thing. I'm a grumbler. I'm a complainer. And so we see again that lights in the world are obedient to not grumble, to not complain. Look at verse 15. It says that you, why? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Again, all these beautiful theological words. Like, I don't feel that. But that's what you are. That's what you can proclaim to be blameless, innocent children of God who are working out their salvation in fear and trembling. All those thoughts that you're tempted with, all the sins that you commit while you grieve the Father, come back to him, run back to him, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. 
He says that you may be blameless and innocent children of, of God without blemish in the midst, in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's our job. That's another way we say our ultimate mission, to love God, love people, make disciples of all nations for God's glory. Shine as light, as salt and light, was he just saying. Paul is saying to the Philippian church, don't grumble, don't complain, don't dispute, so that they could shine in the darkness. Shine meaning to be blameless, innocent children of God. That is our testimony. That is your testimony. And you can proclaim that. You may not feel it, but it's true if you're his child. And God wants us to, to do this in the world, to not be of the world, not to be like the world, but we're going to be in it. This means scripture tells us that we will obviously live in a world amongst people who are not godly. And so we're not to seclude ourselves from everyone in the world or to run away or hide. And nor should we have secluded hearts that do not want to be around people. Now, this doesn't mean some of us may live in a country, in a small town. Some of us may live in a big city. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, where is your heart in this? No matter where you live, around the people that you live around, do you love them? Do you care for them? That's what he's saying. That you actually have this obedient heart to make disciples of those people. Do you, again, do you love those people that God has created? Do you love your city and your neighbors? Whoever that is, if you're in college, if you're, if you're married, if you have literal neighbors, if you're in an apartment, whatever your context is, God is the judge and not us. And not all will be saved, but many will be. And so the Bible also says many are called and few are chosen, but you get what I'm saying. More people than we realize, I think, are going to be saved. And so we must be lights in the world that, that are in the world and not of the world. Lights in the world that do what? repel darkness if that helps you if it is totally dark in here uh they did a light change we will not kill the lights um that'd be a cheesy analogy y'all get it y'all been in a dark closet right and what happens when you light a match or or turn on your cell phone light right at night when you're like that's a new thing right where am i and you could see like light does that just that's what we do and so imagine waking up and seeing total darkness what do you need you need a light a light gives that visibility to to the darkness And how many times as believers do we live scared or threatened by darkness? We see our children do this, right? I love my children. I was scared of the dark too. You know that little hallway you just got to run to the next thing. I don't know why. He's just scared of the darkness. You don't know what's there. It's creepy. Again, we can think that it's this government policy that's going to take away our right that that bothers us and makes us tremble in darkness. We can say, oh, it's going to be this thing or this politician's going to do that thing or this thing's going to change or that's going to change. And then what we're doing is trembling in in the darkness. We have fear and trembling of, of, of man and not God. You see, Paul, like many Christians before, had lived in oppressive states and kingdoms where the darkness was equal or worse to our darkness that we see today. There's nothing new under the sun, the Bible says. The Bible says things will get worse as the end times go. But we can't live in fear of the darkness. That's what we do is we want to live in the fear of the darkness. But do you think Jesus was scared of any type of darkness or sin? We don't have to be either. A lot of times we can't engage with the darkness, with the gospel, because we either are tempted by it, and the Bible says to be careful of that, or we're just scared of it. We don't know. And, and that's why we need the Holy Spirit. Do you think, our, our, again, our true holy God, whom we are to fear and tremble, do you think he trembles at darkness? No, darkness trembles at him. 
and friends and family, we have his power and we can, with the confidence of the gospel, actually live as lights of the world. It's not just a tagline that we sing in a song or say in a sermon. It's something that the Bible says that we would shine in that darkness. We would fear God who created the darkness. So friends and family, are we living lives that are repelling darkness? We have to repel darkness through Jesus as we are in the world, but not of it. We will be in the world, but we will not be of it. And again, to be of the world speaks about our heart and the source of where we get our information. Does your heart go and trust Google and fake news before it trusts God's word? That might be an indication that your, your heart is, is leaning towards the world. You see, we are in a real spiritual battle and Satan wants your allegiance or your belief uh, to, to, to be for his kingdom and, and, and that you would be overtaken by our three enemies, the world, right? Meaning all the, the, the darkness there, Satan and your own flesh. Those are your three enemies. And so if we live like verse 15, that encourages us to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, he says, among What are we supposed to do? Shine as lights in the dark world that we can actually do it. Look at verse 16. He says, how? Holding fast, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, Paul says that I may be poured out, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We must be loving and clinging or holding fast to Jesus and his gospel. That's what hold fast means here. Um, uh, That we are holding fast. Literally in the Greek, we could say holding out, meaning like we're, we're, we're grasping for this thing or offering even. Offering what? Our proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Verse 16, we'll look at it again. We must be passionate about offering what? The gospel to, to people, this word of life. And we can also be proud at the day of Christ, the Bible says. That's interesting. Christians can be proud. We're not proud of ourselves. We're proud of what Christ has done in us. We're excited about it. We have to have some passion. Uh, And and so God is calling us. Not passion can be misconstrued, but passion is passion. That God can give us compassion that comes with his love. He says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What is he saying? That we can be proud of the day of Christ, meaning our purpose as believers, mainly meaning that we are boasting about what he's done and that we we know that we can proclaim the true gospel, that our lives were worth it, that we live lives that are not running in vain, nor are we laboring or working in vain. The gospel brings us ultimate purpose in lives to what we say here at Redeemer, which is is based on the scriptures, to understand and live out the gospel. That's what we're doing every day in loving God and loving people and making disciples of all nations for God's glory, that we love him and that we're understanding or growing in the sanctification and in our salvation, right? Doesn't mean you're getting resaved, but you have a capacity to grow. And that's what the Bible's saying. You have to grow. You're not capped at, you know, like, oh, I, 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 I totally know how to love God now. No, that's what, that's the voice the enemy wants you to have. That little Ned Flanders voice, it's like, yep, you, you know how to love God. You're, you're good. You don't need to grow. You're good. You're, you're not that sinful. That's a lie from Satan. The opposite is, may I see my sin so that I may decrease so that Christ might increase. Did I see that I'm worse than I thought I was every day? But that doesn't mean you walk like, oh, man, like Eeyore. No, that should animate your soul that I need Jesus more and more. And he compels me to see more of my brokenness and sin. And now I can be and shine as a light in the world. Look at verse 17 and 18. Paul ultimately says, lights in the world rejoice. When's the last time you rejoiced in Jesus? Like for real, for real. 
And I just said it in a song. Hey, let's, hey let, let's use those times. Let's use the gathering to do that. Paul says, teach us that no matter what, lights in the world are, are obedient to grow in sanctification while they do what? We rejoice. There's got to be some joy, not just fake happiness, but true joy. He says, even if I am poured out if it's, as a drink offering, even if my life is, is poured out, means given upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, he's saying. Because he's saying, hey, you given a sacrifice to church. It's this mutual thing. He says, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's life was a, sacri- was a sacrifice in gospel partnership with the Philippian church's sacrifice of faith. And Paul is calling us again to rejoice with them. So that the church was, um, as verse 18 says, to rejoice as Paul was to rejoice. They were rejoicing together in the gospel. The Philippian church was able to rejoice. And Paul says uh, he, he, he rejoices and they're rejoicing in that Christ will actually come someday. This earth is not our home. There is more that we have here. And Christ is coming. So let's rejoice together. Let's remember Jesus as the ultimate light of the world. And that we are to be those lights in the world. Because if Jesus has changed us for real, that we, we can actually live as shining lights in this world. And so friends and family, we have seen in our text today, Philippians 2, 12 through 18. That as it teaches and encourages us to live as shining lights in the world who are obedient to grow in the sanctification as they live sacrificially together as gospel partners anticipating the day of Christ. And so we can be lights in the world and Redeemer, you are being lights in the world. Walk in that. And I want to encourage you, church, and any visitors here today um, that we can actually be lights in this dark world through our great God. And so if you don't know him, we're going to respond now. Feel free to respond in what it means to be one of the, to, to know Christ, to love God, and to fear God. We encourage you to do that. Let's pray now. Dear Lord, we thank you for everything that you've done. Lord, we love you, and we need you. Father, you are good. And so we thank you for this opportunity to, to, to grow in sanctification, Lord, that if we are your babies, that if we, as we're going to talk about dedicating our babies here, Lord, if we are your babies, please allow us to humbly grow, to be humiliated because you are humiliated, to, Lord, to learn in these ways what to do, how to grow. We, we depend on you and we love you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.